1: I'm bored of Boris Johnson, and I would like the committee to stop investigating him so that we can stop ever having to hear the words Boris or Johnson in conversation again.
2: Hi, welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Lucy Fisher, the FT's Whitehall editor. You heard there the FT's Stephen Bush on the devastating report into Boris Johnson's behaviour. We'll be reflecting on what it all means for the governing Conservative Party and for Johnson's future. Plus, we'll head to Edinburgh for an update on the political upheaval in Scotland too. And here to get the ball rolling are political fix regulars, FD columnist Miranda Green. Hi, Miranda. Hello, Lucy. And columnist and writer of the FD's Inside Politics newsletter, Stephen Bush. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Lucy. So, before we get down to business, uh, Stephen, what else has caught your attention this week?
1: So I'm gonna cheat slightly in the, the other thing that's happened this week is the the death of Glenda Jackson, uh double Oscar award winning, Tony Award winning actor, but of course also a Labour MP for twenty uh three years and so i i re-watched actually one of the first sort of major parliamentary controversies i had to cover which was her speech in the um tributes to margaret thatcher and glenda jackson doing this wonderful sort of bit of commons theater essentially you know doing this very powerful whatever one thought of the content very powerful delivery which ended with this of a woman but not on my terms so I re-watched that uh, upon hearing the news, and it's um, yeah a brilliant House of Commons moment still.
3: So I w- I'm sort of tempted to try and kind of wrestle in a Ken Russell manner with Stephen over wanting to have Glenda as my own moment of the week because... I do agree with you, listening to her in the chamber when she was in full flood was just the most incredible experience. I mean, that voice had so much power, you know, and we're all used to dealing with politicians who like the sound of their own voice. But boy, was that an amazing thing to have in our parliament, you know, so she'll be much missed. I was going to have a a slightly, you might say, lesser figure as my moment of the week. I always love it when... Minor characters in politics are suddenly sort of catapulted into the middle of a big story. And of course, with the Boris Johnson Privileges Committee report, one of the senior Tories on there, Sir Charles Walker, in a, in a way quite a senior backbencher, but not a household name. But I was reminded of his weirdest moment of fame, which was in lockdown. He was an opponent of lockdowns. And in March 2021, he decided to start a protest that was utterly surreal. He was filmed with a pint of milk, because you were allowed to go out for essentials, saying, for the next few days, I will walk around London with a pint of milk on my person, because that pint will represent my protest. And there may be others who will choose to walk around London with a pint of milk on their person as well. Utterly surreal, utterly bizarre and not really delivered with Glenda Jackson's aplomb, but there we are. Well, that's great. And I'm sure
2: we'll get on to the other uh, members of the committee. For me, my moment of the week was on Thursday, when the new Defence Procurement Minister, and I swear they must have had about four in the past year, finally came to the House of Commons um, to give an oral update on a report by a Casey into the Ajax armoured vehicle. Now, Stay with me, because this is uh, just an absolutely symbolic uh, example of MOD procurement gone wrong. It's an armoured fighting vehicle that was supposed to enter service in 2017. It has already cost £5.5 billion pounds. And in the trials uh, in recent years for this vehicle, it suffered problems with noise and vibrations that meant the soldiers involved in the trials had to be discharged from the military altogether with hearing problems. So it's had real world uh, effects on individuals and their careers in the army. And it's just been catastrophic. So finally we heard this week uh, about the systemic cultural and institutional problems at the mod that have led to this um, colossal cock-up of procurement but uh, as ever the minister insists the program has turned a corner and that we should see all 589 vehicles in service by 2029 so let's see
3: it kind of puts one's own errors into perspective does it not Uh, well quite Let's move on to the much-anticipated
2: Privileges Committee report into Boris Johnson. It finally dropped 14 months after the probe began on Thursday morning. We're recording just a few hours after that. Here's a flavour of how we got here and the reaction.
1: I am here to say to you, hand on heart, that I did not lie to the House. When those statements were made, they were made in good faith and on the basis of what I honestly knew and believed at the time. Boris Johnson is not only a lawbreaker, but a liar. He's not fit for public office and he's disgraced himself and continues to act like a, you know, pound shot Trump in the way in which he tries to discredit anybody who criticises his actions.
3: I don't think this is a good report. I think it's fundamentally flawed. The real issue with it, the real problem with this report is Harriet Harman's position. If you have judged it before you become chairman, you ought not to take up the chairmanship.
2: Well, there's a lot to unpick from this report. 108 pages, uh, 30,000-odd words. Um, Miranda, even for our seasoned Westminster watchers, this report was even more damning than we expected, wasn't it?
3: Yes, it was. And I think what's been interesting about it has been the willingness of the committee and all members of the committee, which is, of course, Conservative-dominated, to really leave no holes barred in their condemnation of a former prime minister. It's ended up with an unprecedented sanction of 90 days suspension and also the language used and the extent of the uh, unified condemnation did take everyone by surprise, I think. And the problem with uh, the re-smog attack on the committee, which we heard there, is that it tries to persuade people that because the chair of the committee, Harriet Harman, is Labour, that this in some way is kind of party political bias, whereas this is a cross-party, conservative-dominated committee, which is there to make sure that Parliament can do its job properly. That's why it's called the Privileges Committee. It's trying to make sure that Parliament can operate in this unique way. And if people mislead Parliament and knowingly lie to their peers, not peers and house lords, but mm-hmm. other MPs, then the executive can't do its do- job properly and it can't be held to account by the commons. So it's actually a really serious moment. Yeah, And, you know, Boris Johnson's kind of praetorian guard of loyalists like, like Reese Mogg have tried very hard to kind of pick off individual members of the committee to see, try and say that they're compromised in some way and also to say that it has political bias. But it's pretty hard to do at this point. Um, how that develops next week, I think, when it goes before the whole House of Commons will be quite interesting to see because there are rumours of some Tory MPs actually staying away rather than actually being put on the spot.
2: Yeah, and I think that's being actively, um, if not encouraged, then certainly facilitated by the Tory whips who are handing out slips which is um, permission to skip the Commons, to any MP on Monday who wants to go and campaign in one of the by-election seats. So uh, I think that is an option that that might be taken up. Stephen, let me recount the five counts that have led to these repeated contempts, as Boris Johnson has been found guilty, just so I can feel like I have put to good use reading all uh, (laughs) 108 pages of this report. And to remind listeners, that Boris Johnson was found to have lied to MPs, lied to the committee, to have breached the confidence of the committee when it passed its draft findings to him last week, to have impugned the integrity of the committee and to have been complicit in the abuse and attempted intimidation of committee members. Now, all that said, Stephen, there is some concern that this 90-day suspension, the longest uh, suspension Uh, handed down to an MP since 1931, bar Keith Vaz, who got six months, that that is the committee overreaching. What do you say
1: to that? I think it both is and it isn't overreaching, right? Partly because the 90 days is very much a kind of, yeah, it's sort of like a slightly unedifying, you can't find me, I quit style sanction, in that he would have got enough to trigger the mechanisms of the recall act, so more than 10 parliamentary days. Um, He would not have got 90 days if he had not already said, well, I'm taking my bat and my ball home. So I would say the 90 days is slightly performative. But equally, then I do not believe for a moment that any of the people who've said to me, oh, you know, I I agree with this, but I think the 90 days is too far, would not have found another, oh, but I think X is too far. Because if you're a Conservative MP and you are thinking about your own future, your own position within the party, Mm -hmm. and you think it's in your interest to leave some space for yourself, to not have said, yeah, he's awful and I'm glad. You were going to find something that they'd done that didn't meet your standards, and the 90 days is, is it, right? That That's mm-hmm. the thing that it's going to be.
3: It's literally it, a conversational compromise, yeah. isn't it? And no more than that.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. If it weren't 90, it would be over oh, 30. If it weren't 30, it would be like, well, I think that footnote was a bit mean. <laughs> or, you know, I think Harriet should have recused herself or she shouldn't have sent those tweets saying he'd lied. or. But actually, in many ways, the number of days is irrelevant because we all know that anything over 10, he would have been recalled, we know that given the opinion polls and the fact it is a fairly marginal seat on its current boundaries, then he would have lost it, right? So... In some ways, the 90 days is just
2: theatre. It's just um, MPs grasping at straws. Yeah, I'm certainly struck by some Tories I've spoken to um, very much admitting privately, obviously, that they are worried about the membership, the activist base that they rely upon when it comes to the general election being largely very pro-Boris. And now there is this splinter group within the party, the so-called Conservative Democratic Organisation, which is literally all the Johnson loyalists, um, many of whom would like to see him Um, return to Parliament, even retake the helm of the party. So I think some might use that get-out-of-jail-free card on Monday to avoid the vote, just to avoid being seen to endorse the report. But Miranda, Stephen makes his point about Harriet Harman's tweets. You know, Boris Johnson's made a big point of, you know, the chair of the inquiry having expressed prejudice towards the very matter being investigated. And if we just remind listeners, Harriet Harman is only chair of the committee for this particular investigation because um, the usual chair, Chris Bryant, he recused himself for doing basically exactly the same thing, having already commented uh, and made clear his view on the matter to be investigated. So Johnson has a point here, doesn't he?
3: Well, I think there's a sort of spectrum because it would have been quite hard to find somebody that senior who hadn't expressed any opinion at all on Partygate. But let's remember that the investigation and the report from this committee is actually about whether he misled Parliament, not about the parties themselves, as it were. But I do think it's important to remember Harriet Harman standing down at the election, lots of the other MPs on this committee are actually standing down at the coming election. They're very senior in... of the parties that they're drawn from, and Harriet Harman, the mother of the House, the role of the committee is actually to defend Parliament. And so, in a sense, I think it's fair enough for them to actually have expressed an opinion about the importance of those rules. You know, I mean, I, I sort of go back to my earlier point. It's true, you know, as as Stephen said, there have been other sort of egregious cases of crimes and misdemeanors, but for a former prime minister to be censured in this way and to have sanctions this serious against them for something that happened while they were in office, while they were occupying number 10, this is a really, really unique situation historically. Um, And so Harriet Harman you know, in that position as a very senior about-to-retire MP, I think is an appropriate person to defend the way that Parliament should operate.
2: And Stephen, just while we're on the subject of members of the committee, um, something kind of buried in this report is that they are going to write another special report on the attack they came under from other MPs. Now, they don't name anyone, but we know the people they're talking about, the Johnson ultra-loyalists, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Andrea Jenkins... Uh, who called this a kangaroo court there are a handful of other MPs and peers um do you think it's right that the privileges committee is saying uh, essentially that it shouldn't be criticised while the investigation is going on or is that an uncomfortable sort of stifling of free speech
1: obviously it is you know it's an important constitutional safeguard that the committee exists to mark MPs homework but it's also important that whether MPs want to say you know well I think it's actually still inadequate at dealing with you know sexual harassment but there is obviously a difference in degree between criticizing the committee and calling it a kangaroo Mm court which is a claim that it is very hard to see how one could substantiate so I think I essentially feel like if the committee were to suddenly start going you know 10 days for Andrew Jenkins (laughs) 10 days for Jacob Rees-Mogg yeah that would be an inappropriate level of sanction. But I think it is reasonable to do a subsequent report going, here's why this was not true. Here's why it was not inappropriate to say so. Um, but I do also, am um, letting the tail wag the dog here, my extreme desire never to hear the words Boris Johnson or party <laughs> ever again. I mean, this thing was ultimately, like the majority of voters think that he lied. The majority of conservative voters think it's time that he, he goes. At this point, right, it's just, it's very naughty, right? It's, I'm, I'm bored of it. I'm bored of Boris Johnson and I would like the committee to stop investigating him so that we can stop ever having to hear the words Boris or Johnson in conversation again.
3: Yeah, I must say I strongly second that emotion <laughs> okay
2: but let me put this to you guys uh no, but, is but, there but can a, a hope in yeah. hell of this actually happening i mean he is the phoenix that rises from the ashes again and again isn't he
3: he is and i was very amused to see allegra stratton his former spokeswoman you know who again was dragged into the whole party gate affair at the time because of the footage that emerged of them sort of joking about lying essentially she she wrote saying i don't write or talk much about Boris." because it would be likely only to perpetuate a story I think most of us want to end. So, you know, even the people sort of involved in the saga know that the British public really has had enough of this. And to your question and Stephen's answer about whether the follow-up of the for the Privileges Committee is appropriate, I think there's also a danger of, um, you know, boring everyone into submission on both sides. But also, you know, the COVID inquiry is going on in parallel. That's the thing that should really matter. But with both, people don't really want to go back psychologically to that time. I think that Boris Johnson and his team hoped the fact that people wanted the waters to close over the horror of COVID meant they'd get away with it. Mm. (laughs) Actually, it hasn't meant that whatsoever. Um, But also, I do think there's there's a great desire to move on. I mean, not least for poor Rishi Sunak, right? I mean, I thought one of the most interesting things this week was how he's caught in this terrible trap of not knowing whether to endorse the committee report fully, how, what should he say about it. I mean, he was very outspoken earlier in the week before the report came out. But now, for the reasons that you outlined, Lucy, mm-hmm. in terms of the conservative grassroots and really fear of his own party's supporters, feels he can't really be wholehearted in sort of welcoming the report and its conclusions. It's a very tricky situation for him. and I bet mean, He's hoping the whole saga stops quite soon. Well, I'm sure he is. I
2: agree. I, I thought that... Um on Monday, his decision to, I, I felt, for the probably the first time, stand up for himself and stand up to Johnson over the resignation honours list was a really pivotal moment. I think we'll look back at that as as the beginning of a new tack from Sunak, because heretofore, he's always had this kid glove approach, hasn't he? Um, he looked visibly
3: angry, do you agree? He, he
2: did. And, and And I think, Before now, he's always been very careful to actually praise Johnson and his legacy on Brexit and his legacy on leading the international response to Ukraine. And I think he probably made the right call from a political stance on Monday to finally say, enough, he asked me to do something I wasn't prepared to do. If anyone doesn't like it, Tough, Stephen. Do you think Johnson himself has has changed tack? Because I sort of detect in the resignation statement last Friday, and in the response to the committee um, on Thursday of this week, an ever more sort of sensationalist, almost dare I say, Trumpian tone in the language he's using. And if you'll permit me, just to read a list of the way he derided the committee's report. He said it was rubbish, a lie, deranged, patently absurd, a load of complete tripe, ludicrous, preposterous, a charade, utterly incredible, artifice, willfully missing the point, and a rehash of non-points.
1: Yeah, so I think he, there has been an escalation in his language, but I think that is that's always the story of Boris Johnson, right? When things aren't going his way, he kind of starts with his kind of like uh, huh, huh, aren't we all good chaps kind of humor. And then if it doesn't work, he becomes more and more like a sort of angry but eloquent toddler. <laughs> um, and then, of course, what tends to happen is he blows himself out. He realizes, oh, actually, wait a second. I, I don't have the stomach for the, you know, right down to him deciding to pull out when Michael Gove blew up his first leadership campaign. And I think we're kind of seeing that in Microsoft because you're exactly right, right? The, the, the big moment, I think, of the week is Rishi Sunak realizing that this, um, let's kind of try and manage everything nicely in the party. And look, there's a way we can all sort of come together through Bonhomie has not worked. And he needs to explicitly go, I'm different from him. I disagree with it. I'm the leader, hear me roar. I, you know, I suspect one of the reasons for the change in tone is the realization that this strategic, in heavy inverted commas, decision to, for them all to flounce out is a disaster for them, right? They they voluntarily left the House of Commons. Uh, well, Nigel Adams and Boris Johnson have Nadine Dorries will presumably soon follow um yeah ultimately the party leader gets to decide if you're a conservative mp unless you have already selected unless the conservatives are at some point led by someone who both doesn't care enough about the electorate then they have like a politician who's more unpopular basically than every single active politician and also they go what i'd like to have is a a center of internal dissent on my backbenches in the shape of boris johnson There is no way back. And so I think the main reason why the language has been going up and up is this realisation of, oh, it is it this time? I've had my grumble uh, and I'm now in a weaker position than I was. And it's, I think, an irrevocably weaker position than it was.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's a low ebb, but uh, I still think he could return. Stephen, Miranda, Thanks. As well as the chaos in Westminster this week, there's been a lot of action north of the border in Scotland too. I think it came as a surprise to many people uh, that Nicola Sturgeon was arrested last weekend, held in custody for seven and a half hours for police questioning before being released. And of course, we must say that she denies any wrongdoing. This is all part of the wider investigation into the SNP's finances. To hear more about this, I caught up with the FT Scotland correspondent, Likania Menyanda. We had a lot to discuss, not least the SNP rowing in behind Sturgeon, sending her flowers and Hamza Yousaf, the current leader, reportedly telling other MSPs to get behind her or quit.
0: What people must remember, Sturgeon is still, was still quite popular when she resigned. You know, like mm-hmm. it becomes a shock in Scotland. I and mean, I think the latest survey, Ipsos, showed her as having a 52% approval rating you know, in terms of her performance as First Minister. So it showed us she's still quite a, a, a big presence in Scotland and she was a very popular leader. Of course, Hamza Yusuf did stand as a continuity candidate. (laughs) And he was, you know, like spent most of of the campaign praising Nikola Sturgeon. Even this week, he he said, you know, she was one of the best politicians in Europe.
2: And you discussed a bit how um, Yousaf and, and the loyalists in the party have stuck by her. And um, is there a wider kind of reappraisal of her record in office in Scotland? There's been, uh, you know, a lot of interest, certainly in London, uh, media about drug deaths in Scotland. You know, going up under her premiership. You know, mistakes and errors in health policy, education.
0: In- completely. In the last election, you know, she she said education and closing the attainment gap in Scotland was a was it a- Defining mission of her premiership, which she never really delivered on. I think that was one of the criticisms of Nicola Stegen, is that she was a good presenter, you know, mm-hmm. good speaker, but, but that that policies were not always thoroughly thought of. You'd have these big big announcements. Without, without much thinking behind the scenes, how it, it can actually be delivered.
2: And what, what does all this mean for the independence movement? Um, I wondered, uh, in particular, whether um, Alex Salmon's ALVA party has picked up voters or activists um, amid all the disarray uh, engulfing the SNP.
0: Mm. Then, see, one of our most supporter of the SNP has fallen, no, no doubt about it. But it's still, like, you know, rating quite high. Like I think the last Ipsos, uh, it was at around forty-one percent, which is ten percentage points down from December, from earlier in the year. Alba still r- rates very lowly in Scotland, and that survey that I mentioned is, is only running at one percent. And with having said. All of that. in the independence in Scotland, the support for independence is still relatively strong. It's still around 50%. So the movement itself overall is not going to go away anytime soon. So that's why also, like, if I was a Labour, I would not be, like, not counting my chickens yet because you've got a half of Scotland that still believes in independence. Hmm.
2: But you preempted my, my final question there, which was exactly about the Westminster elections next year. Uh, of course, at the moment, the SNP have 44 Seats. That's more than two thirds um, of the fifty-nine Scottish seats in the Westminster Parliament. Um, I mean, I'll put this to you. I'm told by sources in Scottish Labour that they're hopeful of improving their current standing of just one MP north of the border to between twelve and twenty-five
0: next year. Does that sound too ambitious to you? I and mean, based on the on on the polling, SNP is down definitely. Like. The question is whether or not it will go down further from here. But, but it is down to a level where Labour can be confident of making some gains. But, you know, there's still a long way to go. I mean, like, you know, s does have a new leader and he's on shaky ground, but he's got time to recover. You could probably say the same thing about Rishi Sunak down south. So, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't count anybody out yet, you know, support for independence. Is still quite strong in Scotland, and SNP is still that main voice for that for the for that constituency, which which is basically half the country. So a lot of work to be done for for Labour if they want to overcome that. That
2: was the FT Scotland correspondent, Lucanio Mignander. So Stephen, where does this leave Labour in Scotland and more generally in the UK, in your opinion?
1: Um, so I would say in Scotland, it's it's far from certain, right? Broadly speaking, corruption scandals do not do that much damage to a political party's standing. It's competence and delivery scandals that are a big problem. Um, in the UK, however, I think it leaves them in a much stronger position. And quite rightly, Conservative MPs can, will, and indeed already are complaining to me about this dynamic, which is that basically, at the election, the broadcasters, which will, will really matter, will, will prioritise what they think fits the story of the election – So in 2015, we had loads and loads of questions about a Labour SNP deal, because the story of the election was, well, David Cameron can't win a majority, Um, you know, he's in trouble whatever, let's have lots of exciting conversations about coalition permutations. I think that the fact, and basically the kind of, the two safe takes, as it were, in Westminster now are, Humza Yousaf's terrible, Mm -hmm. the SNP are hold below the waterline, this means Scottish Labour will make gains means that if you're Keir Starmer and you're looking at your risks going into this election, you will be able to say in an interview, um, well, no, of course we're not going to deal with the SNP and and the matter's not going to arise. And people go, oh, that seems legit. Um, Which, if the polls are right, does seem legit. But in of itself, the the fact that people believe that's true makes it more true, right? Mm -hmm. So the SNP looking like they are vulnerable and the fact that that is kind of the you know, kind of we saw it in in politics in England, right? Then there was a long period when the Conservative lead was going down, fuel prices were going up, um, but like kind of Westminster's default was still like in the kind of horrific results for Labour and the Liberal Democrats in England in England 2021. And it took kind of North Shropshire for people to go, oh, wait a second, actually the political situation has changed. And seeing as I don't think there's going to be an external event that allows the SNP to reset, the kind of bubble consensus around them, is great for the Labour Party because it just increases that mood music of, oh, they will get 20 seats in Scotland, so they will be able to get a majority overall, so we don't need to have this back and forth about about coalitions, et cetera, et cetera, uh, other than, of course, the possibility about a, a Labour-Liberal-Democrat coalition. But broadly speaking, no one is frightened by a Liberal-Democrat coalition.
3: I think the other thing is, in terms of this kind of overall narrative, how can it be bad for Labour to say, well the leader who triumphed both sides of the border in the 2019 election has since imploded (laughs) and those two parties are in crisis. If both the SNP has been in genuine meltdown and the Boris Johnson Tory party has been shoved out and had to be replaced by Sunak looking increasingly desperate about the state of the economy, this is only a benefit for Labour. And also people in Scotland say Labour gets a double benefit from that If the narrative is that Labour can sweep into Downing Street, they get that added boost to their vote in Scotland to then get them, you know, those MPs that they're aiming for, which is quite a high number, I would say, 20. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, up from one, right, the only way is up.
2: Now, to finish up, let's move from political fix to cultural fix, shall we? Stephen, what have you been up to?
1: So, as listeners will hopefully have noticed, I've been away for two weeks. Uh, So the main thing I was enjoying was the art scene in Milan. And so if you are going to Milan, which you should, it's a great city. The Museum of the New Century, which is their 20th and 21st century art museum. I, as a result of that, have been reading a lot about futurism. Um, Yeah, that's my cultural recommendation. Go to the Museum of of the New Century. And what's your cultural recommendation?
2: Well, mine's a bit of a cheat. Uh, I've had a, a pretty culture light week in many ways because it's been um, so busy on the political front.
3: I think we'll let you get away with well, that if this can, week. If I can say it, I've been the recipient
2: um, of a lot of absolutely delicious Yotem Otolenghi meals cooked by my partner. In our household, we are not cooks at all. So when we do cook, it has to be this incredible um, sort of theatre and involves the buying of ridiculous levels of new ingredients that then sit um, untouched ever again. But my promise I have made is that I'm going to use it this weekend to also um, make some of the recipes from uh, Yotam's latest book. And final note on that is that despite the great chef himself being so famous for using a gazillion different ingredients... I'm always struck by an interview he gave to the Beeb a few years ago when asked what he himself has for lunch, his ideal lunch. He said, oh, well, you know, a ham and cheese sandwich, which I just thought was uh, amazing. Uh,
3: Miranda, what about you? What have you been enjoying this week? Well, I actually went to the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition and fabulous sunny day, everybody drifting around in brightly coloured sunny dresses, looking at a really colourful set of rooms They've painted the walls on which the paintings are hung. It's an incredibly sort of fun, diverse collection of art in the great tradition of people sort of submitting works from all around the country, both professional and amateur artists. And they've hung it really beautifully this year. It's really fun. I really recommend it. It's a kind of really delightful outpouring of creativity and also contains, I have to say, a knitted portrait of Yoko Ono, which was (laughs) my favourite exhibit in the show and I highly recommend for the weird factor
2: great I will hope to check it out Miranda, Stephen thanks for joining that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix if you like the podcast do subscribe you can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings it really helps spread the word Political Fix was presented by me Lucy Fisher and produced by Anna Dedder and Audrey Tinlin Manuela Saragosa is the executive producer Sound engineering and original music by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And special thanks this week to Andrew Georgiades. We'll meet again, same time, same place, next week.